Amen. Please turn to Romans chapter 7. I realized as I was studying this sermon that um, there were a lot of things I wasn't going to have to say. Uh, now this would be a very controversial sermon in some circles. It, it really would. There are some that would argue and quite vehemently that uh, the Apostle Paul is not talking about the Christian experience here in Romans chapter 7, especially verses 14 through, through 25. They say that's not, that's not a Christian's experience. Christians don't live like that. Christians don't feel like that. Christians don't act like that. Christians don't think like that. This is Paul talking about himself in a pre-converted state. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to disprove that because I think it's so obvious and I think almost all of you understand that. But I'll spend a couple of minutes later on to give you at least three good reasons why this is the Apostle Paul, not in an unconverted state, but the Apostle Paul telling us the way that it is for him as an example to help us realize the way it is for us. And so that's what we'll be going through here today. But before we do that, uh, let's just remember where we were. We used an analogy at the beginning of uh, chapter 7. Uh, where Paul talks about a wife is bound to her husband until he dies. And that's also true. Husbands are bound to their wife until she dies. Of course it's true. And uh, he uses that analogy that we were under the law, bound to the law, and will be killed by the law. But uh, when the law came, when Christ came and died, he freed us from the condemnation of the law. And so we are not under the law, we're under grace. But uh, obviously the law still has a very important place because the law shows us what's good and right. And we're going to see as we go through here that it's our desire to do what's good and right. Our desires used to be differently. And uh, then we focused on the struggles of the lost, how they try to battle with their conscience and attempt to ease or even erase their conscience. And this was in verses 7 through 13 which I wanted to look at quickly again this morning just to uh, really finish it off to help us see Paul, Saul before he was Paul. Verse 7 of chapter 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Because the law defines sin, doesn't it? That's how we know what sin is. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires, for apart from the law, sin was dead. You know, it's a funny thing. And if you've got kids, you know that it's true. But I won't even use kids as an example. Let me use adults as an example. Okay, there we go. You see a sign in a park. It says wet paint. And you're smart enough not to sit on it, but you're probably going to touch it. <laughs> you know? But hey, don't, don't touch it. That's the whole point, you know. And that's just something that is built within us as natural human beings since the fall. You know, we're attracted to what's wrong. It, the things that are, that are evil, they attract us, you know. And... Um, of course, nobody's ever as wicked as they could be. You can always become more wicked 
substantially. But uh, these are the things that just draw us. But uh, you know, when the law says thou shalt not covet, the one thing that people want to say, well, who are you to judge my thoughts? You know, you don't know if I'm coveting or not. Who are you? God's the one who judges. He's the one that judges our thoughts. And it even says that um, evil desires come from the law. When we're told not to do it, the rebel within the lost man wants to do it, you know. Well, verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Paul, a Pharisee, thought that uh, he was keeping the law. And uh, he was feeling pretty good about himself, so good that he, in his zeal, was uh, capturing Christians and turning them over to be put in prison and even to death, you know. Well, he was alive. He thought he was alive. He thought he was doing God's work. He tells us, I believe I was doing God's service as I did that. Well, he, doesn't, uh, he didn't believe it anymore once he came to Christ. And one of the things that helped him when he was in prison, one of the things that helped him when he was being beaten, one of the things that helped him even, and although we don't have it in Scripture, where he was actually taken out and martyred, we have 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he talks about his impending martyrdom. Okay. But the thing that helped him endure all of that is not only the grace of God, but he was able to say, that's the way I was. I understand them. I understand what they're doing because I did the same thing. And that's very valuable. That's very valuable for us to remember the pit from which we were dug and then to have a more, you know, more compassion on the lost, to tell them the gospel. They need the gospel and to have more compassion for them that way. Verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has that which is good become death to me? Certainly not. It's not the law's fault. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And so verse 9 goes with verse 13. That really helps to see that, you know, to show the work of the law in bringing Paul or Saul to become Paul, his need of Christ. His, his conversion was very, very unusual. Uh, and it kind of, we say, well, it doesn't come out of the clear blue sky. In, in Paul's case, it did come out of the clear blue sky. But it also came with the knowledge that he already had received. He was very knowledgeable of the scriptures, very knowledgeable. And it didn't take much. Well, it took the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to him to all of a sudden say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And there in that is a lot of repentance. There in that is a lot of uh, pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of humiliation as he realized uh, that here I am thinking I am so godly. Here I am capturing these people that claim to worship a different God. Finds out it's not a different God at all. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And of course, um, many things came. He, he was trained by God himself and uh, of course becomes the doctor of the church. Amazing thing. But the Lord used all of that knowledge, 
all of that wisdom, all that scriptural understanding to actually humble him and then use that, all that knowledge he had gained uh, to pass it on to us. That's the way God works. It's amazing. It's incredible what God does. Talking about the law, Stephen Sharnock says, the law is a hammer to break us. The gospel is God's oil to cure us. It's true for all of us. Spurgeon says, if men do not understand the law, they will not feel they are sinners. If they're not consciously sinners, they'll never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive till the law has slain him. And that's the way God works, you know. We see our sin, and then we see our Savior. And uh, if all you see is your sin, that's a depressing, terrible, horrible existence has driven many to suicide uh, over the years, you know. But when you see your sin, no, please stop and see your Savior who has saved you from those sins. Call out to him, cry out to him in saving faith. And then you'll have the Christian experience. And that's what we talk about for the rest of the day in verses 14 through 25. I'm going to go through them a little differently than I usually do. I'm going to basically take them. This is tough. Okay. These are difficult things to understand. But um, I think you already understand the rudiments of it. That's why I say I'm not going to go into great detail to explain why it is the Christian experience. But let me just say this about it. Uh, Paul uses the first person present tense throughout this passage. And the first person present tense uh, is uh, being used in, at times as a continuous tense. And we'll deal with that as we go. Something that's continuously happening. And then um, Paul is using himself as an example to which every Christian should personally relate. The Apostle Paul felt this way, and, and so do I, and so should you. And, se- and third of all, Paul is instructing us as Christians about the realities of sanctification. And this goes right into the context of everything. Chapter 6 uh, talked about us being set free from slaves to sin to slaves in Christ. And um, I was made aware, and, and, and I was glad to be made aware, that some so slaves of Christ, who wants to be a slave? A slave is a terrible thing. Oh, slave to man is a terrible thing. Slave to Christ is a wonderful thing. Because you've got a master that loves you and cares for you and calls you his son. Can you imagine that? Calls you his child, you know. And uh, will do nothing but good for you. You say, well, I have bad things happen to me. Romans 8, 28. We know all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Even the worst things turn around to be good for the child of God. For the lost and those that never come to Christ, the flip side is true. All things are working together for your ultimate destruction. Whether they seem good to you now or not, they will work to your ultimate destruction unless you flee to Christ. So unbelievers really can't relate to 
to Romans chapter 7. That's what uh, really concerns me, those that so adamantly try to say that this is not the Christian experience. Um, I don't know a lost man that could actually say this in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Paul in his lost condition, as when he was Saul, he could say, I delight in the law of God and look how well I keep it. The Christian says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And that's a whole different ballgame for sure. Matthew Henry says this, honest believers also acknowledge that although sin no longer reigns in them, it still remains. And if you want to make Matthew Henry rhyme, you could say it like this. Although sin no longer reigns in them, it still remains in them. It's no longer president, but it is resident. There you go. So, a little bit of, okay, <laughs> very little. <laughs> in Paul's struggles, we can see our own. I'll use the term remaining sin to describe this lifelong battle. I'll be a little more attached to my notes than I usually am because I want to get it right and I want to do it logically as we work our way through. But if you really want to see a great treatise on this, uh, John Owen, Volume 6, uh, Mortification of Sin. If we don't have remaining sin, we don't need mortification of sin, do we? You know? But John Owen, Volume 6, a masterpiece. And if you want uh, actually this particular passage, uh, Owen deals with it on pages 154 through 163, 10 pages, and 10 pages in Owen is a lot of pages. That's a lot of words in 10 pages. And um, he deals specifically with Romans 7:21. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. He deals with that in those 10 pages and deals with the context of it too. So we're talking about spiritual warfare, the battle without and the battle within. So let's use our outline to help us here uh, as we go through. Proof of remaining sin. Even as a new creature, I still sin. Verse 14. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, we don't believe in the carnal Christian theory. The carnal Christian theory taken to its worst extent would say, well, you know, if you prayed your prayer to Jesus, you're eternally saved. Doesn't matter how you live. Doesn't even matter if you think about him again. You know, that's all you had to do is make a decision. Yeah. And then you can live your life as a carnal Christian and uh, just go about your business living in sin or whatever it happens to be. Okay. No, no, not that at all. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about when he says, for I'm carnal, sold under sin. He actually called the Corinthians carnal. If you remember, you know, in 1 Corinthians, he said, you're carnal. And then he goes on to, to give them 20 points in their church that they need to fix and uh, to, re to actually amend and change. And we know that so many of those points were fixed because the book of 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite books, uh, talks about the wonders of Christ and how they've been reconciled to Paul. 1 Corinthians is really sad because of all of these problems, but 2 Corinthians is a blessing because those problems by and large were fixed, not perfectly, 
but fixed nonetheless. So carnal or flesh as described here is human weakness subject to the allurements of the old sinful nature. And it's a word picture. The dominion of sin has been broken. They're no longer slaves to sin, like our Romans 6 illustration. But sold under sin means the state he presently lives in, in the already and the not yet reality, which is a very important principle of, of a New Testament um, understanding, the already and the not yet. The not yet is perfection in the eternal state. The already is where you and I are today, progressive sanctification, not perfected sanctification, not glorification, but sanctification that's progressive. You know, he's already perfect before God and forgiven through Jesus Christ, but he has remaining sin and cannot reach perfection in this life. Now, Proof of Christianity, a new motive, verse 15. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. What he's trying to say to us through the Holy Spirit is, how can I be like this? How can I act like this? How can I think like this? I don't want to be like this. I don't want to fall again. And again, and again, I hate. That's what it says. You're gonna have to look at your Bibles quite a bit through here to, to really stay with me. I hate, I detest, I despise what I do. You see, now something's changed for the Christian. The Christian finds no relief, no satisfaction, no joy in sin. No satisfaction with getting away with it. Only guilt and even frustration in his sin. Now, remember this, friends. Christian friends, take heart. The Christian, you know, is often quantitatively, quantitatively, as we grow in grace, we, we can and do sin less. As we grow in the Lord and understand more. But in another sense, the things that we do fall into, the, the word ill-spoken, the thought that uh, grips our mind, the things that really were considered trivial before are now really bothersome to us and cause us grief because we're more sensitive to sin. And that sensitivity to sin causes us to go to Christ again and again, and again. Not for salvation, but because we want to walk in his steps. Yeah. Spurgeon said this, it's on your outline. This life, verse 15, is um, this, and verse 15, sorry, is the believer's riddle. To say that this is not a believer's experience is to prove that the man who says it doesn't know much about how believers feel. We hate sin, and yet, Alas, alas, we fall into it. We would, like to be, we would like perfect lives if we could, we that are renewed. We make no justification for our sin. It is evil and abominable. 
Yet we do find these two things, warring and fighting within. And then another dear saint with the Lord, R.C. Sproul. When we've been born again and the spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts, we have new natures and new desires, new inclinations and new attitudes, new love for the things of God. But that love is not perfect, it's not pure, it's not yet completely realized in our lives. There is a constant daily struggle and warfare with the old self whose desires are battling with the new self. It is precisely this battle with which every Christian has struggled that Paul is setting forth here. So we've said it many times before, but the sermon's entitled The Believer's Struggle, and we should see ourselves as struggling. Strugglers, strugglers from against the, the sins that are without and struggling against the sins that are within. Now verse 16, you know, proof of Christianity, a new battle. Proof of true Christianity, a new battle, verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Skip down to verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I think that helps us to, to see the passage if we put those two verses together that way. The law in verse 16 stands as the standard of what's good. There's no fault in the law, but there's also no redemption in the law. The law is a standard to show what is right and what is wrong. And verse 22, regeneration is a new life. And now we love the law because it is God's law. And we hate breaking the law because it's God's law. The very same thing. You know, we don't just obey God. The new creatures we are delight in obeying and following God. You know? Say, well, I wish I could delight more. Well, just keep persevering. Keep on going. We all have dark times. We all have dry times. And that's part of God's providence in our lives, too. We all have times where we read the scripture and we don't get a whole lot out of it. Our mind is wandering, you know. And we just have to rein that in. But that happens to us. There's times that we try to pray, and the next thing we know, uh, we're not even praying anymore. We're just think, taking a trip around the world or whatever, you know, it might happen to be. This is the weakness that we have with our humanness that causes this to happen. So what do you do? Well, you just keep on going. Because really, we delight. And you would think that because we delight in serving God, that we would do it all the time. We will. We will. That's what heaven's going to be like. That's what the new heavens and the new earth, when they come together, is going to be like. We're going to delight in God. We're going to delight in who he is. We're going to delight and, and wonder and marvel and praise. And that's what we're going to do. That's going to be our great delight. You know, Maybe your great delight would be to, to go to Disney World. Okay. Some of you go, no way. <laughs> I don't want to go there. But maybe that would be your great delight on earth. You get sick of it pretty fast, to tell you the truth. Yeah, you really would, you know. But your great delight, your real delight is um, in God. 
And you'll never get tired of that. That brings us back to the apostles' puzzlement. I do delight to serve God, so why do I do what I hate and don't do what I now love? In verse 15. Now, the Christian is a strange new creature. You know that we're new creatures in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's very, very true. But the Christian in this life is a strange new creature. And we start that in verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Talking about if I, I should read 16 with it. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good, but now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. And that, my friends, is not a cop-out. Paul is not refusing to take responsibility for his actions, but Paul's saying this. Paul is a new man, and, um, and, you know, he will be perfect one day, he knows that, but it's not altogether done yet. You know, so we agree with the law. We agree with the law, you know, that, um, but let me tell you, Christian friend, I need to remind ourselves when we go through a passage like this. We agree with the law, but look at 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The law can convict us, but the law cannot condemn us. And there's a big difference. The law can convict us, and when we break it, it does. But the law cannot condemn us because we're in Christ Jesus. That's not a cop-out. It's not an excuse for sin. If we do think it's an excuse for sin, it probably shows that we don't know him at all, is the truth of the matter. But uh, our new desires are such. So in verses 17, 18, he's contrasting the new man in Christ with his old man. 17 again. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. A contrast between the new man and the old man. In my flesh, in my flesh, verse 18, is not our physical flesh. Our bodies are not inherently sinful. That's not what Paul's saying. The Greeks believe that. The Greeks, uh, some of them were, were so adamant about that that they said it'll be so great when we finally die and are shed of this body and our free spirits to float about. And uh, oh, those that had that philosophy, what a horrible reality it must have been when they died. You know, that it wasn't what they expected it to be. You know, but it, to wake up in hell, what a terrible thing. And without Christ, that's exactly what happens. You know, well, in my flesh, not our physical flesh, our bodies are not inherently evil. And you know how you can prove that? You're going to live in the body that you have for all eternity if you're a Christian. It's going to be remade, it's going to be new. It's going to be sinless. It's going to be perfect. You know, all the things we don't experience today. You know, that's what's going to happen. And um, 
what will be missing from our flesh, and we'll have flesh in heaven, but what will be missing from our flesh is what we could call remaining sin or our humanness. Our bodies will be remade in a perfect state and remaining sin that we experience today will be gone forever. And there's a reason for that. It's a reason that you know full well if you've been around the church for any length of time. We will not be under a time of trial. There will not be time of testing. It's not going to be like Adam was because there's the second Adam. Adam had a tree that he ate from. You know that well. And of course plunged us all into sin. Broke his commandment that he had. But our second Adam kept the law perfectly for us. There's no way that we can fall as the first Adam did because we are in Christ and kept by Christ unto the day of perfection. And in the day of perfection there will be no corruption within. It'll be gone. You'll be free to do what you really want to do right now. Today we strive and struggle to do it. You're not going to struggle in the eternal state. You're going to be free in Christ to serve him perfectly. No struggles. You're not going to be tempted to fall away because there is no temptation. There's no trial. You're not on trial. Christ did the trial and served the trial and passed the test for us. Adam failed. Christ succeeded. And he succeeded for us. Can you imagine what would have happened if Christ would have followed the example of Adam? Well, that was impossible. That, that couldn't happen. That, that was not going to happen. That was, it was never a, a worry in God's mind uh, that uh, the Son of God, who has the same mind as he, would fall and fail. But had he failed, there would be no salvation for anyone. It would be gone. It would be impossible for anyone to be saved because we would then be responsible for ourselves. Aren't you glad you're not responsible for yourselves? If you're in Christ, in Christ, you belong to him. He did that for you. That is so important to understand. And then, the anthropology of the thing. You know, the reality of living in this present life. Verse 19. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. It's pouring out his heart here. He's saying something. Admitting something. Admitting something for Christians of all ages that follow will we'll read and, under, and hopefully understand. He's saying something that I'll put it into different words that the Puritans have often put into different words. Even our best works have sin in them. Yeah? We, we find that to be true. We, we work really hard for Christ and then pride wells up. Look what I've done. You know? Oh, we work really hard for Christ and say, well, no one is appreciating me like they ought to. You know, all these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our best works have sin in them. Paul is not saying that he never obeys. 
And he's not saying that he sins all of the time. But even our best works while we're here on earth in this present condition are mixed with sin. Our motives and our desires. You know, I, I, I know this. I've tried to, to make sure this doesn't happen. I've been preaching over 40 years. And uh, people tell, say, well, that was a really good sermon. And I'll say thank you. But I really don't usually take it to heart because I know that the best sermon is mixed with sin, you know, because it was preached by a man. You know, that's just the truth of the matter, you know. So, yeah, be appreciative uh, to the sermons that you hear, absolutely. But, uh, you know, it's important that the preacher really not take that to heart and say, well, it must be the, the new, you know, John Calvin or <laughs> the new Spurgeon. <laughs> no, no, not at all, you know. But, uh, you know, our, our best efforts are mixed with sin. And that just, you know, it's the old man coming through, you know. It's remaining sin coming through. Verse 21, I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Do you see how that goes with verse number 20? You know, now all the verbs... And, and if, you know your, if you know your English, um, it doesn't come across in English quite this way. But you can find the verbs. And do understand that all of the verbs from, from verse 19 through 21 are in the present active sense, which denotes continuous action, something that's ongoing. It's happening now and it will continue to happen. Okay. And we have a hard time doing that. We can't really do that in a word. We have to multiply words to make that happen. So look at verse 21 while I read you uh, something more having to do with this idea here, okay? Verse 21. And trying to duplicate the sense of the Greek. I am continuously finding a law. And law is used in the sense of principle. Okay, it's used in the sense of a principle here. I am continuously finding a principle that evil is present with me, continuously near at hand, for instance. Evil is presently, uh, continuously near at hand, the one who wills or desires or purposes to do good. Okay, so I, I hope you were able to follow that. I'll do it one more time. I'm continuously finding a law that evil is present with me continuously near at hand, the one who wills, desires, or purposes to do good. And I believe that's a good sense of, it's an over-translation, admittedly, but it's a good sense of verse 21. Evil is, in, is continuous from within in the new man who wills or purposes to do good. We already dealt with verse 22, but I'll just mention it again. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And um, regeneration is a new life. And now we love the law because it's God's law. And we hate breaking the law because it's God's law. And uh, we love God. It's very different. It's an inward activity from a changed heart. Verse, uh, we go through here, okay. We love God. We know God, not perfectly, but we know 
more than we used to know. Now, the lost man really doesn't know God at all. If the lost man knew who God was, he wouldn't be able to, to challenge God and say, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do things like that. If I were God, I, I wouldn't allow wars. If I were God, there wouldn't be any cancer. If I were God, there wouldn't be any disease. There wouldn't be any sickness. He's talking about the eternal state, the way it's going to be, and he's not even going to be there to see it. That's the amazing thing about it. We know God in his purity, his holiness, his perfections, in his purposes, all the things we know about God that he's revealed in himself. And there are many scriptures where he's revealed himself. We can delight in the law of God as a renewed man because it leads us to reflect on God himself and who he is. And 23 and 24 kind of sum up the battle. We battle with this principle of remaining sin, 23 and 24. But, me, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wouldn't that be horrible if that's where the book of Romans ended? That would be a terrible ending. It would be a hopeless ending. We would be miserable and have no hope. Who will O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes quickly so that you do not despair. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. The answer that we need. The remedy that's given to us. You know. So we can talk about the verse, you know, the spiritual power or principle in verse 23. That's of a different kind than the law of his mind, which the apostle says. We have the mind of Christ. Somebody actually quoted that verse here today. We have the mind of Christ, and, and there it is. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. Another law. Every, well, you know, notice in verse 23 as we get down through here, you know. But I see another law in my members. Every first semester Greek student would learn something about this very early. Uh, Greek has something that we don't have. Whenever you see another or other, uh, there's two different words it could be. And because there's two different words, there can be two different meanings that it can be. Uh, the Greek word alas is another of the same kind. Okay, so we're comparing two things that are the same. You know, alas. But there's another Greek word, and the other Greek word is used here. It's heteros. It's another of a different kind. Yeah, another of a different kind? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's confusing. But not once you understand the difference between alas and heteros. In fact, uh, you use it on a basis yourself uh, when you use a word that, uh, like, um, think of heterosexual. People are humans. Men and women, but they're of a different kind, even though they are absolutely human, the same, but it's human of a different kind. And so we say, 
heterosexual, you know, talking about a man that's attracted to a woman and a woman that's attracted to a man, which is the way it's supposed to be. Okay, that's a good thing. It's another of a different kind, you know, not attracted to the same kind, okay? So this is what we're talking about here. There's another law that's at work here. Another law of my members warring against the law of my mind. And the law of my mind in this sense is doing what God would have us to do. And so there's this battle that does go on. It's not a white dog, black dog battle. Uh, that's way too simplistic and far beyond uh, what we're trying to say here. There's a principle that we belong to Christ and we're his. And then there's still remaining sin that we battle. And some, you know, and, and should get the victory over, but we won't get the victory every time, you know. This principle of remaining sin wars against the new nature given to him by God. And Paul's not alone. He's using himself as an example. Uh, let me just uh, read a quote here that I put together from a few sources. Paul's salvation is not imperfect or in any way deficient. From the moment of his conversion, the believer is completely acceptable to God, but as long as he remains in this mortal body, in his, own, in his old humanness, he remains subject to temptation and sin. It'll be a glorious day when you can never be tempted again. That'll be a glorious day. You know. And Christian friend, that day will come. You know. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says, what he hates most is his sin, and he calls it the body of death. And the answer comes quickly. What keeps the Christian going? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he sums it up by saying, so then with the mind, and there's the mind coming again, okay? I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, that's remaining sin, the law of sin. And then he comforts us by telling us there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me conclude and end with, can you thank God even for your struggles? Can you thank God even for your battles? One day the battle with sin will be over when we're with the Lord, remaining sin will be gone, death will be swallowed up in victory. But a word to the lost. If you do not struggle with sin, if you do not have a struggle with sin, it's because you're not at war with sin. You surrendered yourself to its power. If you do not struggle with sin, if there is no struggle, it's not because you're perfect. It's because you don't know him. Simple as that. And you, I'll end with a quote. And the quote is on your outline. James Edwards says, this chapter closes with a reminder that the Christian life is one of tension and struggle. To be righteous with God is not to be fully free from the effects of sin. Believers must, and they'll go to a number of scriptures to prove this, believers must run the race with perseverance. And though there is progress, sin, sorrow, and death do not in this life fade away. These remain enemies, death the greatest of them. Through all of this, the Christian learns to walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Our one anchor is the promise 
and presence of the resurrected Lord who gives grace for the present struggle and eternal life in the world to come. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've worked our way through a passage that has been controversial, especially in more modern times. But Lord, we would just pray that we would ever look to Jesus. It's true that we're tempted. It's true that we sin. And these things, Father, save us from the grievous sins that we see have befallen men of God in the past. We think of David. We think of so many. And Lord, it's sad that uh, when we think of their name, sometimes it's their sin that we think of in spite of the godliness and the, the character and, and the good that they've done. Lord, we could ruin ourselves by great sins like that too. Preserve us from that, Father, but help us to battle, to battle to keep sin down, to look to Christ, to ever trust in Him. May we, Father, find daily, daily, daily parts of grace that we need, daily, daily, daily making use of the means of grace, Father. And when the means of grace don't appear to be working, Father, let us believe you by faith and not by sight. Let us know that this is what we're supposed to do. So let us do it, Father. And may we find you in that. May we find you, Father, we're not going to find you by giving in to sin. Instead, Father, let us find you in the delight that we have of being new creatures in Christ and would give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.